0: Hello, I'm Pastor Rob Spencer of Church United. We are excited because God is at work in our community of Christ followers. And it is my hope that God works in your life as you listen to this message today. If you'd like more information about Church United, please visit us at churchunited.family. Thank you for uh, joining us again. I'm Pastor Rob, uh, one of the pastors here at Church United. Thank you for being with us. We, if you didn't tune in last week, we started a new sermon series called Unprecedented Times, Unprecedented Signs. And uh, what we've been talking about really is uh, in this uh, strange time that we are in, we hear this word unprecedented used a lot. And the reality of it is, though, when you look at the scope of humanity and human history, I should say. Um, It really isn't unprecedented. We've seen health crisis before uh, to greater magnitudes than this. We've seen financial crisis to greater magnitudes than this. We've seen um, things take place that we now are saying are unprecedented that it's happened before. Um, and uh, not, that, not that that should bring you a grand amount of comfort, but maybe a little bit, that we're still here. Humanity has still survived. God's still in control. That should kind of be on our framework. And maybe it's unprecedented in our generation. And, and, and maybe it's in, in your lifetime. It's been unprecedented. Uh, but. It's not, and this is the, the, the bottom line here, it's not unprecedented to God. God knows everything that's going to happen. It's to say it's never been done before, it's never happened before, it's unknown. Nothing is unknown to God, so that, as followers of Jesus Christ, should bring comfort. You should say, man, God's in control, God's in charge, and this big word, omniscient, he is all-knowing. He knows everything that's happening before it happens, and God is still in control. So we talked about this idea then, uh, Our little key phrase last week was, the way through the crisis is to trust who Christ is, all right? So you remember that, because that's the theme throughout this whole series that we're in right now, unprecedented times, unprecedented signs from God. And we're looking at how Jesus really, then in the book of John, uh, it's seen, and all throughout the Bible really, but we're honing in on the book of John, written by the apostle John, and how John really brings out this idea that Jesus has a desire and a heart to reveal the glory of God, to reveal that he is, Jesus himself is God, um, and, and he does so by stepping into people's personal times of crisis in revealing who he is, revealing that he has unprecedented power, that he has unprecedented signs that he can show to reveal that he is God, he is in control over all things. So this week we find ourselves in in John chapter 2, and and it's a fun little uh, story uh, and an account of Jesus at a wedding. Now, this is interesting, and we 'll read through John chapter two verses one through eleven, so if you have a Bible and you want to get turned there and get ready, and I would encourage you uh, that we 'll be in the book of John for a while. So I would encourage you even next week we 'll be in John chapter three. You can go ahead and start reading ahead. you can uh, do your homework before we get there, so you kind of have a context when we walk into next week or where we 're at, but even if you didn 't read we 'll read together the story of um, the water into wine, the wedding at Cana in Jesus' miraculous uh, sign that he performs here in John chapter two, but the question really is a wedding you know like like this is where Jesus steps onto the scene because what we 're finding is that it 's his first Revealed miracle, his, his unveiling really of allowing the public to see who he is and the power that he has. And, and sometimes we think, like a wedding, this is where he's stepping in. But I just want to remind us if, if you've forgotten, if you've been long removed from a wedding, you've been quarantined in your house, so there aren't a lot of weddings happening that you've been invited to. But if there ever in human uh, experience has been one singular event that seems to bring out the grandest of stresses. Um, it seems to be a wedding. Uh, and now I feel some of this is very self induced. Uh, in today's day and age, you got little girls who have grown up uh, watching all the Disney movies and the princess, uh, princesses getting married, these elaborate weddings, and little girls dream of their, their wedding day, all their lives, and the guy is just kind of hoping to get through, uh, you know, unscathed. Will I, can, can I make it to the other side of this? Um, and, and, and then you, you compile this with family, um, okay, so so not only is it a wedding event, but then all your family's coming in, and some of you just can't even get through a Sunday dinner with your family, let alone a big wedding planning event. So everyone's in, and you got all the stresses, all the voices coming in, and then you've got the bride who wants things to be just exactly right, and 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 there's a reason why some of the TV networks have capitalized on uh, kind of reality shows in a wedding like the Bridezilla. Um, it just contends to bring out the worst in people, um, maybe you can think back to your wedding and your event and, and I hope it was lovely, um, but there are stresses that take place in this, and we all know that that this can be at the place where where you don 't see our best there's a lot of tension there's a lot riding on this there's a lot going on and and, and re- you know, the truth is, you know, I'll just take an opportunity since there's no one really um, in the room and, and I can't see your faces. But, I, you know, let's think about this for a second. You know, who is the, all of this stuff surrounding a wedding, who is the star of the wedding? You want to say the bride, but I'm telling you, it's the pastor. Um, I'm just saying, who has all the lines? The pastor, who just has to repeat after what the pastor says? Who's the guy who's got to come in the room and figure out how to break up all these family fights, how to calm people down, how to convince the groom to walk on the stage because, man, you got it this far, you can't back out now, you know? It's the pastor. I just want you to feel a little sympathy for all the pastors around the world who have to walk through that, you know? And since you're not in the room here with me today, I I, I can say that and none of you think, he's looking right at me. Uh, No, no, I'm, I'm just... It's a little bit of a joke, but there really is a lot of pressure that goes on and a lot of things that go into a wedding. So this is the scene. I just want to set the scene for you because in in, in this time, in Jesus' day, in, in, in Cana, where he's at, this is a big deal. Now weddings in that day looked a little bit different and not was the pressure so much on the bride actually in that time as the pressure was on the groom. The groom was the one, and there was a betrothal period, an engagement period. And, and this is how it kind of worked in this Jewish culture at this time, is that, that, that the, the man would go to the gal and he would ask for her hand in marriage, um, and then it would be granted, but for at least a year, there would be a betrothal period. and the actual the commitment was made, the, the, the ceremony, the, the legal bonding and agreement was done at that betrothal engagement period, but the wedding wasn't complete until. About about a year later, when they walked through the ceremony, and then at the end of those days of ceremony and celebration, there was a consummation of the marriage. Parents, have fun explaining consummation to your children who are in the room. Good luck. That's the word of the day. Um, a little later, you can talk about that. But there's a, a consummation to the marriage, and then it's complete. But here's what everyone's expecting out of the groom during that year. The groom is then, he's not with his bride. He can see her and everything else, but he's preparing a home. So he's building a home. He's getting things in line. He's getting things in order. He's, he's making sure his house is ready for the bride. And he's also preparing and paying for this big, huge celebration that's going to take place at the end of this year for the big, grand celebration. He's got to have it all in. And everything for the groom is riding on his reputation, his ability to provide, his worth is all at stake. When it comes to this year-end celebration before the marriage is consummated and all the family is gathered, all the friends come in, and in that time, and especially in that region, it wasn't a very large region, so this was a big, big event. So that's where we find ourselves. So if you have the book of John... Uh, in your Bible, which I hope you do, um, if you have that pulled open, let's read along this uh, this story of the wedding at Cana in John chapter 2. It says, The next day there was a wedding celebration in the village of Cana in Galilee. Now Jesus' mother was there, And Jesus and his disciples were also invited to the celebration. The wine supply ran out during the festivities. So Jesus' mother told him, They have no more wine. Jesus, in verse 4, replies, Dear woman, some of your translations just say, Woman, says, That's not my problem. And Jesus replied, The time has not, my time has not yet come. Verse 5, but his mother told the servants, do whatever he tells you. So standing nearby, there were six stone jars used for Jewish ceremonial washing. Each could hold about 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus told the servants, fill the jars with water. When the jars had been filled, he said, now dip some out and take it to the master of ceremonies. So the servants followed his instructions. And when the master of ceremonies tasted the water that was now wine, not knowing where it had come from, though of course the servants knew, he called the bridegroom over. Verse 10, a host always serves the best wine first, he said. And then when everyone has had a lot to drink, he then brings out the less expensive wine. But you have kept the best until now. This miraculous sign at Cana in Galilee was the first time Jesus revealed his glory. Now, let's just be honest for a second. Water into wine. Where's the crisis? You know, because you're looking at this. Now, some of you are in quarantine, and you're claiming this miracle for yourself because you ran out of wine. And you're like, Jesus, I've got that bottle over there. Please, please, I just need this miracle. And I'm telling you, that's not a miracle to claim for yourself. This isn't one of those miracles where you say, God, that's for me. And, but water into wine. Let's think about this for a second. What What is it? Now, I... I will tell you this, I could pause right now and we could go into a whole nother message about, uh, I actually we could probably go verse by verse through this and most, most stories in the Bible and spend a week on each verse talking about it and picking it apart. Here's what I do want to say because there, there is a, a whole debate around alcohol and alcoholic beverages and all that kind of stuff. I will say this, and, and this will be the only thing I want to rest on in this because we could spend a whole series talking about other things like it. Do not condemn what the Bible doesn't condemn, okay? I will just say it that way, because what, when you condemn something the Bible does not condemn, that's called legalism. And what we do is we do condemn what the Bible condemns. The Bible does not condemn alcohol. The Bible condemns drunkenness, okay? So I just want to put that in perspective for anyone who's out there thinking, oh, water and the wine, it wasn't wine, it was grape juice. Um, and Jesus just made grape juice, and no, you know, and we've got all this stuff. The Bible clearly talks about alcohol, and he clear, clearly talks about fermented beverages. And it's not condemned. What's condemned is drunkenness. Okay, so just put that in the back of your mind. Just let that sit on you. But here's what I'll add to that, because we could say so much more. Is it doesn't mean it's for everyone. You may be one of those who needs to step back and say, "I, this isn't good for me, I don't know where the line is, I don't know how to stop, and you just need to be one that's cut yourself off from having to do with that. Or you're in a position where you know someone else has been an alcoholic and you need to take into account those verses that talk about not causing a brother to stumble, not putting something before someone abstaining from things, using wisdom, okay? So there's all kinds of little caveats that go along with this. But the one grand statement that I will make is don't condemn what the Bible doesn't condemn. That's called legalism. Okay. Back to the story. A little sidebar. You're welcome. Um, so, here we go. So, water in the wine, you know, because it is, you wonder, what's, what's the big miracle? Why is this the thing, okay? And, and, and because the groom... Is responsible for this year-long culmination of what's going on. Now the groom is responsible for making sure his guests are taken care of. So when it comes up to this, that there is a beverage that's being used, and you could go back into those times, and we could walk through uh, the way the water was and purification of water, and in the adding of the fermentation, which then killed some germs in it. So a lot of times, all they drank were uh, you know diluted alcoholic beverages. There are all kinds of theories and thoughts on this, but here's the point that. we're... We're trying to get out of this is not how much alcohol was in the beverage or how much wasn't not really the point right here what the point is is the host who is supposed to be supplying this party this celebration with the beverage whether it's soda or alcohol it doesn't really matter at this point he ran out right so if you have all these people over to your house and you've got coca colas flowing like the salmon of Capistrano. If you've got something happening here and, and it's coming, and, and then you find out we're like two hours into this four hour party and we're completely out of drinks, you're running back to your fridge, pulling out anything you can find, and you're looking, and this is this case, it's just embarrassing. in a, in a monumental embarrassment, not just a party, but this guy is proving to this, his bride's parents, that he is a provider, that he can supply, and he can do this, and when they find out or when other people find out he's, he would be humiliated because here he is. He's had a year to figure this thing out. And really? You dropped the ball on this one? You couldn't count the people and figure it out? So here is the crisis in here. And, and, and here's what's also interesting. When you look at this, you see that why is Jesus' mother Mary have really anything to do with this? Now, many historians would believe that there's probably a relation here, that maybe this is Jesus' cousin or somehow related into, into the family, that Mary is a part of actually helping throw the bash, that she's serving in some way. And so Mary finds out, before all the other people find out, she realizes this thing's going down. And Mary then is like, oh no, this is bad. I don't want Johnny or whatever his name is, the groom, to find out that that this is already done. It'll ruin his day. He'll look like a fool. How am I going to solve this problem? Now, we can do a little speculation here. Uh, And and this is a little speculation, okay? So you won't won't find this written in here. I'm kind of reading between the lines. But I think, I just kind of feel that, that Jesus... Being Mary's son has a very special place in her heart, and she would know that there's something special about Jesus, right? I mean, the first clue may have been that angels appeared to her to tell her she's pregnant, Uh, second clue may have been that she gave birth to a baby and she was a virgin. You know, there's something going on here that she's probably aware that Jesus is a special boy. And he's not just a little boy at this point. He's 30-some years old or close to 30 years old. And and, and what we have here with Jesus is uh, we have a picture that... in. About three years later or so, Jesus is hanging on the cross, and Jesus looks down to John, who's writing this book, and he says, John, behold your mother Mary, Mary, behold your son. Basically, take care of Mary. Why is he doing that? Because Joseph is no longer there. Most believe that Joseph died sometime when Jesus was younger, and that Jesus potentially was then being the oldest in his household would have kind of been taking the place of the head of the household. That means Mary, the mother, was always dependent on Jesus, and who better to be dependent on in your own home than, than the Son of god um, that, that, that you know I think Mary knew Jesus was pretty special here and he had the power to solve some problems. He had grand wisdom and great wisdom and now I might be taking this a little too far, but you know if Jesus were where, where my son, if we were out of milk, I'd be like, Jesus, uh, you know, I don't really want to run to the store. Maybe, uh, maybe we could do something here. You know, I don't know. A little speculation. How many times do we lose our keys, and Mary's like, uh, son, uh, could you help me out? I can't find the keys. And, oh, what's that behind your ear, mom? Uh, you know, I don't know. I'm just saying. Uh, but maybe that's speculation, but here's what's not speculation. No matter what, Mary knew the heart of her son. Right, She knew Jesus loved. She knew Jesus was compassionate. She knew Jesus was caring. And she knew that Jesus had a heart for people. And that here is a big crisis taking place, potentially with someone that Jesus is even related to. And Mary is trying to save this groom face. She's trying to redeem a situation. And who does she take her problem to? Jesus. Who else would she take it to? And she walks up to Jesus, and she says, Jesus, can you help? And his reply isn't very promising, right? Like, what's this have to do with me? Why are you coming to me? My my hour has not yet come. And then Mary makes this statement. Even in the midst of Jesus' response, Mary makes this statement and says, turns to the servants and says, Do do whatever he tells you. Do whatever he tells you. Now, this is a grand, grand statement. I want us to realize how huge this statement is. And and I could pull out, we could probably do a whole message series on that statement. But I want to pull out just a couple things. Number one, trust and obey really simple simplicity we talked about it last week the way through the crisis is to trust who Christ is but we can trust but here's what we sometimes forget to do is we believe and we trust in Jesus and we say yeah Jesus I trust you but we're not willing to follow or be obedient to what he's telling us to do in the midst of the crisis we just want him to solve the problem God you got this But we forget the obedience side of it. And Mary says to those guys, turns to the servants, and she says, do whatever he tells you. Obey whatever he says to do. And and Jesus desires to step into your crisis. Jesus has unprecedented power to solve whatever you're dealing with, to see you through. And God wants, and many I should say, want to see God move, but we don't want to do any work ourselves. We don't want to take steps of obedience. We don't want to walk the hard walk of holiness. So we're excited for God to show up, but we're like, God, we just want you to work. We don't want to have to do any work. And this begins to to weigh heavy on us when we start thinking about what are the things that we expect God to step into our lives to save us from. And we sometimes are even willing to make some grand promises in the midst of this. God, if you just save me from this situation, I'll stop this, I'll stop that, I'll take care of my kids better, I'll hang out with my wife more, I'll go get a better job, or I'll actually get a job, or I'll actually go to work, or I'll actually say I'm sorry to that person, I'll offer forgiveness, Lord, I don't know what it was that got me here. All of a sudden, we're making all these grand gestures and grand promises, but reality is, we know time and time again God's answer to prayer, and then we step out and just go back to the way we were living before because it's easier for us. And we may trust God and he may have proven himself to us, but we're not willing to walk in obedience consistently. And the reality is of Mary's statement is it didn't make any sense. From what Jesus said to her to what she turns and says to the servants, Jesus like, Jesus, we're out of wine. Ah, that has nothing to do with me. He's going to solve the problem. I don't know if you heard that tone in his voice. That's his problem-solving tone. Uh, so do whatever he tells you and now what Jesus begins to tell them even in the instructions itself so number one it didn't make sense that he's going to do anything and now he starts telling them okay we'll see those jars of water go, go fill those jars with water why are we filling these jars with water water is not wine well, this isn't gonna, even if he was going to dilute it, you wouldn't dilute it to that. You don't brim them to the top and then dilute. Okay, So even if he's got some wine sitting out in his camel pouch or something, and he's going to bring it and dump it in, you don't fill the jars completely and top them off with water because there would be nowhere to dump the wine. It just doesn't make any sense. Why are we doing this, Jesus? And sometimes when we're called to trust and we're called to obey, we will obey even when it doesn't make a lick of sense. Even when the world around us says, that is not good worldly wisdom. That is not common sense. Even in the midst of that, we have to take a step of obedience and do whatever he says. Whatever he says. Even when you don't understand. And what I love about this, even when there's no sense made, if you want to see a miracle, sometimes you have to make a move. We just want to sit back and say, God, do all this stuff for me, and I'm just going to sit back and watch Ooh, and God wants you to be involved. God wants to use you to take a step of faith in that, take a step of trust in that, take a step of obedience in that to say, God, I, I want to watch you work, but, but, but if you want to see a miracle, sometimes you're going to have to make a move. You're going to have to make a step. You're going to have to step out and trust in obedience. And too many want a miracle from a Savior without movement from your sins. We want to sit in our sin, and we want God to work, but we don't want to move. And I'm telling you, a step of obedience sometimes will begin the flow of blessing in your life, because trust is born from obedience, but blessing follows obedience. When you trust God and then obey Him, blessing follows obedience. Blessing follows obedience. We take steps of faith. And and what I love about this is in in verse 8, what's it say? The servants followed his instructions. The servants followed his instructions. They did what he said. Now, I've worked with my kids sometimes. My kids are sitting over here and they're kind of talking and playing and goofing off, you know, but... I, I've worked with my kids sometimes, and you can't see them, but they're, they're really happy that I'm addressing them right now. But I've asked you to do some things and say, hey, do it this way or do that. And the question always comes in, why? Why do we have to do that? Why do we have to do it that way, Dad? I'm going to do this. No, don't do that first. Do this first. Why? Because I said so. And sometimes that's where God is at in this is he just says so. You don't need a why response. You don't need to understand it. Just take a step of obedience. So, secondly then, so trust and obey, and then the other big piece of the statement, do whatever he tells you, is expect and believe. Expect and believe. Because, again, Jesus' answer to Mary, to help her with this problem, was not very promising, right? Mary's like, help me, and he's like, "Eh." No, not my time. Sorry. And 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 you know, like it or not, and and it was different phrasing in those times and a different way it was used and Jesus was not in any way being disrespectful when he said when he called his mother a woman. Uh there's all kinds of uh th- talk behind why he did that and separating himself be, from being about his mother's business to be about his father's business and separating himself from the family. We're not going to dive into all of that. But what I'm telling you, it wasn't a comment or a, a, a phrase of disrespect at the time. Jesus was just saying, hey, and I, NLT softens it by saying, dear woman, uh, <laughs> dear, dear woman. Um, so whatever it is, some of you guys have made this your life verse. Woman, my time has not yet come. It's not my hour. You know, what's this have to do with me? I've tried that with Kelly. She's like, hey, can you empty the trash? Woman, my time has not yet come. What's this have to do with me? It doesn't go very well. Don't try it, guys. Find a new life verse. Just a little, just a word from your pastor. Not a good life verse. But any of it came out, it did not seem super promising to Mary. It just didn't sound like it. But what did Mary do in response to Jesus' response? Because she knew the heart of Jesus... Because she knew that Jesus had a desire to care for people, to reveal the glory of His Father, and she knew what was taking place. She had a relationship. And she knew also something that a lot of mothers know. Your boys love you. And I'll tell you that. No matter how they're acting, no matter what they say, they love you. Your children love you. And even when they're rebellious, inconsistent, strange, weirdo teenagers or they're walking through some phase know this, moms and dads, your kids love you. They love you. And my kids are laughing with joy because of how much they love their mother. Do you guys love your mom? Yes. They love their mother. And and here's the thing that a mother knew. Here's what a mother knew. Jesus was her son. And Jesus had a heart for her. And Jesus had a heart for people. And she, with expectation, knew that when she turned and said to those servants, do what he tells you to do, that Jesus was going to come in to her crisis and to this other guy's crisis and the groom's crisis, and he was going to show up and he was going to save the day. She knew it. She expected it. She had expectation from Jesus because she knew who he was. She knew his heart, a heart of love and a heart of compassion. So Mary expected Jesus to step in to this crisis and reveal God's glory. And I am convinced that many people are striving to trust and striving to obey God. But you've settled into life thinking, well, this is it. This is a long, arduous path, and we, we claim verses that we read in James chapter 1 of um, I, I endure uh, life, I endure trials, and we kind of forget about the joy part, but we're just enduring, we're plodding through, We're we're just pilgrims, we're just passing through, this life is not for us, and it's going to be hard, and I don't get to enjoy it, and I don't get to love it, and I'm just going to put up with it, and one day my Father will call me home, and it will be glorious, but until then... Okay, Lord, what do you want next? Okay, I'll go over there. Uh, You know, and a bunch of Eeyores just walking around with no expectation that God desires to bless you, that God desires to reveal his glory in your life, that God desires to see you thrive with joy in this life. It doesn't mean there won't be hard times. It doesn't mean there won't be struggles. But what we're promised in the hard time and in the struggle is that they have purpose for building up our faith, for building up our hope in Jesus Christ, for also building up our hope in the future. But it doesn't mean that God doesn't desire you to live with joy in this life. And I'll tell you something. There's nothing worse than me to be than being around someone who has no expectation of hope or joy in their life. To be around a Christian... Who acts as though they're just miserable and they're just plodding through life. To be with someone who has no expectation that God is going to do the miraculous at any second. And we just wait with bated breath on God showing up and revealing his glory. And I love difficult situations and I love trials. And I don't even fear to say that because God knows that about me already. And I'm not waiting for any, well the ceiling here may cave in because I'm at the mall. But, uh, and water may fall on my head. That wouldn't be surprising. That's not really a trial to me. But anyway, uh, I'm waiting at any point for God to say, if a trial comes in my life, I can't wait to see how God's going to work and how God's going to move. So we wait with great anticipation, with great expectation, with great belief that God wants to show up in your situation, in your crisis, in your thing, and God wants to come through. He wants to reveal His glory in your life and when you trust and obey you should expect that blessing will flow your way when you trust and you obey expect that blessings going to flow your way this is how we should live this is what Mary was doing she said hey I trust my son I trust the son of God I trust Jesus he's, he's we're here in a crisis I trust him I believe and I expect that I know his heart the heart of a mother knows the heart of her child and she knew his heart was to step into the situation and she had no doubt that Jesus was going to show up and he was going to save the day. I love that. So I'm telling you, you live your life with expectation and anticipation of who Jesus Christ is and, desi- and what he desires to do to show up in your life in unprecedented ways showing his unprecedented power with unprecedented signs of his glory being revealed to show you that he loves you, he cares for you, and he's real, but also to show the world around you that he is good. That he is God. That he deserves glory and praise. Now one last thing. Back to this water and the wine thing. You know, what's What's the big deal? So Jesus turns this water into wine, right? So this happened. Somewhere between verses seven and eight, miraculously, this thing happened, like, boom. And, and you kind of wish Jesus would have had a little more showmanship, like waved a wand wave or something over over those things, but it wasn't. It was just like, fill them up, OK, Dip your thing in there, and I'll take it to the master of ceremonies and let him have a drink. And, 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 and that's what they did. The servants obeyed. They, they dipped that ladle in there, whatever they had. They took a drink to the master of ceremonies. He tasted it, and he's floored. All right, He's like, what in the world is going on? Where did this come from? Who was hiding this wine somewhere? Because this is the good stuff. And he's like, someone got this backwards, or something happened. So Jesus, or or this master ceremony, then walks up to the the groom, and he's like, "Guy, this is your party. You're throwing this thing, and, and I think we got something backwards." I don't think you understood what happens. You are supposed to put out the lesser stuff last. You put out the good stuff first. Like if, if the company comes over to your house and they stay too long, you know you may have had steak, but by the end you're ter- serving them cheese whiz and crackers if they want to keep eating. But you put out the good stuff first. You get them full, and and, and they they. This is the master of ceremony says to the the groom and said. Man, I don't know what you're doing. I don't know how you chose to throw this party like this, but this is incredible. This is the best wine. And you say, Well, what's the big deal with the miracle? And I'm telling you, John, once again, the author of this book, John the Apostle, is going into this book to prove over and over again that Jesus is God. You wrap yourself back up into uh, rewind, excuse me, rewind yourself back up into chapter one and remember that that verse in chapter one. Where in, in, in verse 3 it says, God created everything through Jesus. Nothing was created except through Jesus. And John's reminding us that Jesus is God, that Jesus is the creator. He created everything from nothing. He made something from nothing. There was no dirt. There was no seed. There was no vine. There's no branch. There's no sunlight. There's no grape. There's no crushing. There's no time for fermentation. There is no problem for Jesus because he speaks and it comes into existence. And John said, Jesus skipped the whole process. He is God, the creator. And out of nothingness, Jesus created wine. He skipped everything and he spoke and there it was. He is God. And I love how Jesus is proven as God, and at the same time, he steps in without anyone knowing it, or very few knowing it, the servants and Mary and his disciples. Jesus steps in, and not only did he save the day by everyone having something to drink, by saving the party, but Before the reputation of that groom was ever even lost, now Jesus steps in and he even gives him a greater reputation. In the midst of a blunder, Jesus stepped into this man's crisis. Well, this man didn't even really know what was going on. Mary sounded like she came to them and talked to them about it before the groom even knew that he was out. He didn't even know he was in a crisis. And Jesus steps in and not only redeems him, but redeems him to a greater reputation. Most people save the best for first and the worst for last. But this guy throws such a good party that he waits to the end. It's unprecedented to do what Jesus did. And he lays it on that groom with a great blessing. And he saves them from a crisis that he didn't even know was happening. Jesus cares. Jesus loves you. He desires relationship with you. Jesus desires to step into your crisis, whatever that may be. And he desires to bring restoration. He desires to bring healing. He desires to love you and show compassion on you. We trust and obey and then expect that blessings are going to flow our way. So church, what I would ask you to do this morning is just bow your heads in your living room, wherever you're at, and, and, and if you're in the midst of this and you're just kind of processing a little bit right now, it's just time to just kind of close your eyes, put your heads down, get the kids to be quiet around you or whatever it is, turn off any other things that are going on and just take a moment and, and, and breathe in the presence of Jesus. Because no matter what's going on in your heart or your life, I'm telling you, whatever your crisis is, Jesus desires to be in that crisis with you. And the way through the crisis is to trust who Christ is. And when you trust and obey, then expect blessing to flow your way. What is your personal crisis? Just think through that. Maybe right now it's just fear. Maybe it's anxiety. Maybe you lost your job. Maybe someone you know is sick. Maybe... One of your family members, or it's you yourself, you're every day exposing yourself on the front lines to this to this virus, and it's just fear that something's gonna happen and something's gonna come your way. Maybe that's what it is. Maybe it has nothing to do with any of this. Maybe it's a marriage problem, maybe it's a relational problem. I'm telling you, Jesus wants to show up. I believe another sign in this first miracle, and we could preach again, over and over again, that Jesus values the institution of marriage. It's one of the reasons I think he came onto the scene and did his first miracle. In a marriage, I'm telling you, Jesus can restore your marriage. He wants to step in. Miracles are, marriages are made for miracles, and miracles are made for marriage. Jesus wants to step in. If it's a relational issue, if it's a problem with your children, you just can't relate, something's going on there, a problem between you and your boss, maybe it's a job situation again, financial situation, I'm just telling you, Jesus wants to be in your crisis. What's your crisis? A personal crisis that Jesus wants to be in? What miracle do you need? And then what's your prayer? Is your prayer in the midst of this, God, save me, even though I don't plan to live in such a way that I follow you and I'm obedient to you? Because I don't think God really desires to respond to those prayers. Or maybe your prayer is, God, just, just give me the strength to plod through another crisis. And there's no expectation of joy or life. It's just, get me through this. Or are you praying, God, I trust you. I strive to obey you. I strive to live with an expectation that you desire to bring blessing my way. God desires to do a miracle in our life, in our Personal crisis. Let's pray today and ask that He would help us to walk in obedience after Him, to trust Him, and to live with expectation that He wants to do good in your life. And He wants ultimately for Him to be glorified and for us to glorify Him and to point others to Him.